The good news is I think education, uh, which I think is generally in decline in the USA, K-12 leading the way down the rat hole and colleges following. And I, But the good news is uh, the internet has arrived. And so internet learning is going to completely obsolete K-PhD education. So all those buildings being built at high schools and colleges won't be needed so much because we'll do most of our learning over the internet. And we won't be struggling to get degrees so much as learning things. Uh, and not just K-12, but learning things lifelong. So we're, And this will uh, break that you know, the tension between what you should learn in college, should you learn how to do a job or you should learn to be a good citizen, you can do both and you'll do it over the internet rather than in the conventional K-PhD system we currently have. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. If you've ever used the internet, like ever, you probably owe this next guest a good bit of gratitude. Today, we've got Bob Metcalf on the program. Yes, Metcalf's Law. Yes, the guy who invented the Ethernet in 1973 while at Xerox Park, founded 3Com Corp, built it up to nearly $6 billion in annual sales, became a venture capitalist for 10 years, taught entrepreneurship, and of course, got into writing. Bob's been everywhere when it comes to the internet era, from beginning to now, and has a ton to add to the conversation when it comes to the future of free enterprise, entrepreneurship, and more. In today's episode, we'll discuss how Xerox Park pioneered so much of the early internet, why we need to build an energy internet now, the prospect of biotech in health and healthcare, how to deal with and think about black swan risks and rewards, why Bob believes free enterprise is almost always the answer and income inequality is a good thing, and what to think about technology pathologies and progress. This one was a really interesting one. Bob and I get into it with some heated debates. We've got differing opinions on certain things on the political and economic spectrum. But I think that this one was one that is incredibly important to bring forward because we can have respectful, valuable discussions between people with differing points of view and hopefully come to a conclusion at the end that suits everybody just a little bit better. So now, without further ado, I give you Bob Metcalf. You probably know I'm big on biohacking and trying to make myself the best I can be. That's why I'm excited about what the guys at Neurohacker Collective and Daniel Schmachtenberger, who was previously on the podcast, are doing. They're some of the smartest biohackers on the planet, and their Qualia line of brain-enhancing nootropics make it obvious why. You guys can get 15% off any order, or with a subscription, 50% off and 15% off every future order by going to disruptors.fm slash qualia, that's Q-U-A-L-I-A, and using coupon code disruptors at disruptors we're big on health and biotech for a reason it amplifies everything disruptors.fm slash qualia use coupon code disruptors and now let's get on with the program we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things not because they are easy but because they are hard does it ever get odd having people refer to you as an internet pioneer as someone who created almost the industry that most of this is built on? Well, it's gratifying. It's also uh, 
challenging in that, you know, success has many fathers. So there are many people who were pioneers of the internet. I'm, I'm happy to be among them, but I get a little nervous when we start to allocate credit because then the fighting starts. I know. And you, you joked a little bit before this about wanting to be famous, about wanting to, I think that's primarily making a difference. It seems like that's been the driving force behind your career. But what is your big and overarching goal today? Uh, innovation, applying what I know about innovation toward uh, uh, freedom and prosperity. That's the top level goal. So I've, I've become, eight years ago, became a professor uh, of innovation. And, uh, and I'm also the fellow of free enterprise at the University of Texas at Austin. So I would say my chief enthusiasm is uh, free enterprise. Why free enterprise? Because it works. It uh, improves uh, freedom and prosperity wherever it's tried. What do you think about China and the experiments they're doing there? There's a lot of good and a lot of bad. How do you think about that from an advancing society perspective? Well, I'm not a China expert, but I have been abused by Chinese companies. I've been in the room abused by Chinese companies stealing technology. So I'm a little bitter about that. But on the other hand, many of our students and professors are roughly Chinese and they're fine people. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a complicated future we're moving towards. I think everyone's trying to do the best with what they have and what they're given. So you were, you were one of the earlier guys at Xerox Park and you ended up becoming incredibly successful from your work there. Talk to me a little bit about Xerox Park, about creating Ethernet, and about the early days of the internet. Well, Xerox was a copier monopoly, booming company. And for some reason, it decided to create a research center and put it in Palo Alto, California to be near Stanford. And uh, I got to go there in 1972. It wasn't brand, brand new, but there may be like 20 or 30 people there. And I was the networking guy. I had done uh, the ARPANET, the uh, sort of Internet 1.0 at MIT. And so I did the ARPANET at Xerox in 72. Then in 73, we all decided to, the lab, the computer science laboratory at the Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, decided to invent the personal computer, put a computer on every desk. Pretty amazing goal. And uh, But they needed them to be networked. So I lucked out and I got the assignment of networking a building full of personal computers uh, with a, um, a new kind of network. And the network had to be fairly high speed. And that's when we first adopted the principle of build it and they will come. That is the first ethernet ran 10,000 times faster than the bandwidth we had the day before. It was quite a step up, 2.94 megabits per second. And then uh, Dave Boggs at Xerox and I uh, at Xerox then filled Xerox Corporation with an internet, sort of a prototype internet, a, a forerunner of the, of the big internet. And so we filled all of Xerox's buildings with personal computers and ethernets and routers and laser printers. And we saw that it was good. And, uh, and then later in 1979, I left Xerox uh, to start 3Com, the purpose of which was to recreate what we had done inside of Xerox. So you were working at arguably the most influential building with the most influential group almost almost in history or at least in internet history. What was that like? Uh, well, it was heaven on earth. I would work until I got tired and then I would go to sleep and then I would sleep until I woke up and then I would go to work. And uh, sort of my day, our days processed around the clock without regard for sunrise and sunset. I will say that after 
after four years of that, my marriage fell apart. So I, maybe I'm not recommending that kind of lifestyle. But it, uh, we had no limitations on money. We flew first class because Xerox was a monopoly and had huge gross margins. So we flew first class and we got to publish our work. Unlike a secretive corporate lab, Xerox decided that the Park Lab would be like part of Stanford. So all of us, many of us were professors of one kind or another over at Stanford. So think of Xerox Park as a, you could think of it as a Stanford lab. How did we create something like that going forward? This is something where there is that dichotomy of how much do tax corporations, how much should corporations invest in future growth? There's been a lot of stock market manipulation, so to speak, focused on short term. How do you think about long-term innovation and creating some type of hub like that? Well, I wouldn't create a hub. I think part of the secret is competition. So the would be many hubs. And I've generally concluded that corporate monopolies are not the ideal uh, funders of research and that rather research, basic research should be in research universities. And that's why I'm at one, University of Texas at Austin. So rather than recreate Bell Labs and Watson Labs and Xerox Park, uh, I guess I would lean toward using our research universities as uh, research institutions. Their key benefit being they graduate students. So it's the students coming out of these labs and think of me leaving Xerox as graduating from Stanford in a way. Uh, we can then champion our new technologies and accelerate their adoption at, uh, impact. Uh, I, th I thought of Xerox Park as a time machine. So we were able to go 10 years into the future and flesh it all out and sus with suspension of all the constraints and then come back into the present to build uh, to build the next generation of products based on that view of the remote future. If I gave you a magic wand and near limitless funding, what would be that big project you would tackle now? Well, that... Uh... That's a very personal question. There's lots of good answers to that question. It turns out right now I'm busy. I'm starting a new such initiative. I should say I'm joining a new initiative, which is geothermal energy. So we're starting an activity at the University of Texas to apply what's known about drilling and reservoir management from the oil and gas industry and applying it to the harvesting of heat from the center of the earth. And that is lots of energy with no emissions. So that's a new that's a new project. Is that a good answer to your question? I think it's a good answer. Why geothermal? Why not wind? Why not solar? I'm on the board of a solar wafer company. So it's not that we're rejecting solar. Well, the, the answer to your question is there's a particular person at the University of Texas who had this idea and she sold me on becoming the principal investigator of a geothermal startup ecosystem project. And the Department of Energy said, yes, and we'll support it. So that's how the decision was made. It's not as if I considered all possible projects and chose what the best one. It's more the surrounding um, conditions conspired. And yet, I think you've got a soft spot in your heart when it comes to energy and the environment. Talk to me a little bit more about where you see us headed and what you're working on these days that has you most excited. Well, I've just uh, a month ago began a 15-month leave from the University of Texas because after eight and a half years, you probably should have a change of scenery. And my leave is not a vacation. So I've taken on four jobs for these 15 months. One of them is, is uh, building this ecosystem for geothermal startups. Uh, another one is that I'm doing a, a conference in January in Dallas on um, innovation in Texas and how we can accelerate the or improve the startup innovation ecosystem of Texas. But then I'm now involved uh, with two startups, one doing uh, Internet of Things for healthcare and the other one uh, doing uh, artificial uh, industrial artificial intelligence. 
So those are my four, that, my, those four projects are my answer to your question. And those are the four things that keep you busy. Speaking of four, you've had a lot of roles. You're a VC, a scientist, a founder, a teacher. You've played the gamut, so to speak, when it comes to innovation and entrepreneurship. What have been some of the pros and cons? What have been some of your favorite roles and why? Uh, well, there's, there's, uh, it's hard to, some of these things are incomparable. So it's not as if being a VC was better or worse than being a scientist, just very different. And the difference is important. That is, I have found that happiness is on the steep part of the learning curve. So by jumping every ten years to a new a new career, which is generally quite different from the, pre the preceding one, I get to jump onto the learning curve and enjoy climbing up. And so I'm right now learning how to be a professor, and I'm now learning a little bit more about those four topics that I just ran through. So learning, being on the steep part of the learning curve, is where I want to be. What do the students teach you? What do you learn from them? Uh, the students. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, uh, what have I learned from mostly it's, it's energy. Students generate energy and I, I, um, I'm sort of parasitic. It, I generate my energy from theirs. I have found that working with faculty is more productive for me, but of course, every faculty member has a flock of students in tow. So the way I access student energy is through their, um, professor leaders. So my work at the University of Texas over the last eight years has been focused on helping professors do startups. And of course, there, as I mentioned, there is a flock, generally a flock of students in, that, uh, in the general vicinity of that professor. What do you think about the state of education in the U.S. where everyone is going to college, they're coming out with a ton of debt, and there's not necessarily jobs, in all likelihood, there's not comparable jobs for a lot of the people coming out because a lot of them didn't necessarily need a college degree to do what they're doing. Right. Well, I have more degrees than uh, anybody else. <laughs> so I, I'm on shaky ground. But the good news is I think education, uh, which I think is generally in decline in the USA, K-12 leading the way down the rat hole and colleges following. And I, but the good news is uh, the internet has arrived. And so internet learning is going to completely obsolete K-PhD education. So all those buildings being built at high schools and colleges won't be needed so much because we'll do most of our learning over the internet. And we won't be struggling to get degrees so much as learning things. Uh, and not just K-12, but learning things lifelong. So we're, And this will uh, break that you know, the tension between what you should learn in college, should you learn how to do a job or you should learn to be a good citizen, you can do both and you'll do it over the internet rather than in the conventional K-PhD system we currently have. I've heard some compelling stats that in-person education still has a much higher success rate in terms of how much students are retaining. It has something to do with eye contact and having uh, back and forth interactions with a teacher that keeps people more locked in than listening to something. What are, what are your thoughts on how we make a transition to more of a internet and distributed education model when we have everybody forced to go to K to 12 or your parents are going to jail kind of deal. And then the, oh, guess what? Johnny just got into Harvard. Johnny just got into Yale. Oh, but Kevin's going to Princeton of the competitiveness that happens between parents, which is kind of something that feels like it pushes students or pushes kids towards college, whether or not they feel they need it. Well, I, I went to college all the way through my PhD and I'm embarrassed to admit I went to MIT and Harvard and became a Stanford professor. So I'm infected with that branded education thing. It was cheap. It was cheaper then. Yeah. But I am a big fan of education. Uh, not so much of degrees. And by the way, I think education has lost market share. I think we learn most of what we know outside of the educational system by a long shot, you know, through television, through peers, through the internet. So I think uh, 
going to school KPHD has already lost substantial market share and, and it's it's going down and down and down. Part of that is just due to the corruption of the system. You know, a system that takes somebody who hates math and isn't good at it and makes them a math teacher, that's just not a healthy situation. So anyway, the good news is internet learning is booming and coming and it will save the day. What industries are you looking at most as a VC? What industries do you see the most ripe potential in the next 10 or 15 years? Uh, well, I'm no longer a VC, but um, I think the industry, you know, were I starting companies, they would be in um, health, uh, health, not health care, not health insurance, but health. And uh, p- perhaps the uh, there is the Internet of Things, the next generation Internet, uh, which is right up my alley, but it's coming on strong. The danger of that is that we're suffering from the pathologies of the previous Internet, which came on so quickly, we still don't know how to deal with connectivity. And no sooner are we confronting Facebook and Google et al. as pathologies of the Internet, we have a new Internet coming that's a thousand times faster and better. So it's going to be fun to watch how we deal with all the connectivity that's coming up. How do you think we're going to deal with it, especially with all of the data privacy? I mean, it's essentially every day some company is handing over all of your data on accident. Sorry, we got hacked. We didn't really know what we were doing when it comes to security. That's different when we get into IoT wearables and suddenly you can access my Alexa and you know what my blood test ratings are. And wow, Matt's not doing enough steps today. I think we better up his insurance premium. How do you think about how we can handle that as a society? Well, I think that's the normal pathologies. Every technology comes with what I'm calling pathologies, things that need attending to. One of the troubles with dealing with these pathologies is the Luddites come out of the woodwork and they want to shut everything down. And I'm no fan of that. So I think we need to proceed with our pursuit of better and better technology. And then as we're doing that, attend to the unintended consequences. I think the privacy thing is currently flared up, but it will in time. We're figuring out, we're figuring privacy out right now. What do you think about GDPR or something similar for the states? I don't have any strong, I don't know enough to answer that question. Not a problem. One of the measures of someone's intelligence is when they're willing to say, I don't know enough to answer that question. When people, when people just talk through their mouth is when you, you know, you run into trouble. You're, well, it's a complicated topic and I just haven't spent enough time. I've just joined the board of a company that's going to deal with the privacy of storage of genetic of genomes, uh, a company called Insightome. So I'm about to learn a lot about that very topic, but I haven't started yet. Speaking of genetics, genomics, how do you think about the the future that we're moving towards so quickly where we can sequence and we can soon improve and then we can soon optimize embryos before it happens? How do you think about biotech, about synthetic biology, where we're headed, when our reach exceeds our grasp and how we should proceed? It's very similar to the dealing with the internet pathologies. We have used that word too much now, but you know things are going to go wrong and we need to address them and we are addressing them. They're just not solved quite yet. But on the other hand, that we shouldn't create excuse for the Luddites to take over. So the, the were I to be starting over right now, it would be in genetics and healthcare because it feels to me like those fields are right where the internet was in 1980, ready for huge steps forward. Instead of a massive trial and error drug industry, we're beginning to engineer healthcare. And that's really great news. I think a lot of, I mean, I still remember when polio, I'm old enough to remember when polio was an actual disease that my friends got. 
and uh, and it went away. And I think a lot of the uh, a lot of other things, bad things, are about to go away thanks to our uh, effort to uh, cure diseases. Do you think there are pathologies, so to speak, where move fast and break things is too damaging? Where it is more prudent to have a, a luddites approach, not necessarily a luddites approach, but for instance, with biotech, if propagation happens too quickly if we have a high schooler who gets upset and creates their own little designer plague some of these things are kind of uh cats out of the bag type of deal where it's hard to go back and make those changes post whatever happened post black swan wow thanks for giving me that question you're very welcome thanks <laughs> i'm just glad that i don't have to answer that question. I'm, I'm terrified by the concept of this kindergartner whipping up a little plague you know we had the actual plague breaking out in los angeles already and that one was not done by uh, bioengineers that was that's being done by rats sorry i've run out of material no worries with uh with biotech it is it's terrifying in some ways but it's also fascinating so you've you've gone through a lot of different areas in your career what are some of the moments where you've had the the biggest struggles where you've had to overcome something i i know launching a company you you've done quite a bit there what was that like well the hardest thing ever was a 10-year period during which it was expected that IBM and AT&T were going to kill my company. And so, for example, IBM didn't like Ethernet. So it invented its own local network called the IBM Token Ring. And for 10 years, I went to work every day with my board of directors and my employees, even my family telling me that Ethernet was doomed and IBM was going to crush us. And, you know, that can really wear on you after 10 years. In the end, Ethernet won, which has created a monster. I am the monster now. Having been persistent for those 10 years, I, I don't take advice anymore. <laughs> I'm, I'm so confident now that I'm right about everything. Why did you win? What's that? Why did Ethernet win? Well, it was a, a variety of ideas. First of all, the Ethernet was designed as internet plumbing by people who had built the early versions of the internet. So it knew exactly where it fit in the internet architecture. And it was an open standard, which is, uh, we take those for granted now, but they, that was a new idea back in the 70s and 80s. Every computer company had their own network architecture. Ethernet joined with TCP IP to be a standard open, and later um, HTTP and HTML and URLs joined that family of standards that created today's internet. So the standard, the fact that it was uh, internet native, and it worked. Working is important. It had to work. And then eventually it became everybody but, roughly speaking, everybody but IBM. So we ganged up on IBM. And uh, the customers really liked the idea of a multi-vendor standard product that was faster and cheaper than IBM's. And so after about, roughly speaking, 10 years, Ethernet broke through. What do you think about the closed ecosystems of today? You've got iOS with all of the Apple products. You have Google building up Android and Google Play. Everyone's trying to build their own little walled garden, which is the opposite of what won in your case. Will something distributed and decentralized win? Or do you see the internet going further into these, we have an incredible garden here and we're just going to optimize the heck out of it? I don't, um, I don't accept that general model that there's something evil in these closed gardens. I mean, I think iOS was a great step forward and the App Store is a fabulous idea and it's really useful. And, uh, and fortunately, Google's competing with Apple. So as long as there's a little competition, that's a good thing. Uh, so what, what we need to do is maybe make a few standards create some new world garden 
So I, I don't uh, I don't sort of buy into that notion of the closed garden being an evil thing. The other side of that question is quality control and higher degrees of security that you get by having something of a walled garden. What about the companies that have been skipping going through the Apple store, for instance, to avoid the 40% take? Companies like Spotify, companies like Tinder. There's a, there's a lot of companies that are doing it now just because the take is too high. Is it something where if they reduce the percentage, then it makes sense? Yeah, that's competition. That's a great thing that's happening. So pressure is being put from these companies that are forming, uh, you know, going around Apple. So Apple has to earn its 40% or reduce its 40% because it's under competitive pressure. That's a great thing. Tell me about the internet. I want to transition a little bit to energy. You're, I've, I've heard you say that we're building out the, the internet of energy, so to speak, the infrastructure. What do you mean by that? Well, energy is uh, obviously a very important problem, solving energy. And I, I keep that separate from solving the environment although they are obviously related, but uh, solving energy. We need cheap and clean energy, and the evolution there has been slow. The, bi- the biggest, most successful initiative in energy has been, uh, came out of Houston, Texas. It's called fracking, and fracking technology is a major technological breakthrough and saved the U.S. economy and made us a net exporter and blah, blah, blah. Uh, so it's a um, uh, so we need to have a few more silver bullets like that in the energy field so that we can solve energy and and my approach to it since I'm an internet person of course when you're a hammer everything looks like a nail I've been thinking that energy needs to be solved in a way similar to the way in which we solved bandwidth through the internet and, and one one parallel there is that the internet uh, at the very beginning had no storage uh, it, it had been the the model of AT and T and others to keep storage out of the network and the way the one of the ways in which the internet proliferated and provided good service is by adding storage in the routers and the servers and on the iPhones and so on. So in energy, the same, uh, by analogy, uh, we need energy storage. And we need energy storage both to uh, bridge across the intermittencies of solar and wind, but we also need it to smooth out the randomness of demand. So there's a just a, one example of what I mean by taking an internet lesson and applying it to energy, which is our pro- we should have a priority on developing energy. And in fact, we do have a priority on developing energy storage to help solve the problems of energy. I also think that the model of packet switching on the internet, the sending of data in these little packets, of data. I think that's going to be picked up by energy over time. And we're going to be switching packets of power around in a way that's akin to the way that uh, data is switched through the internet. The levels, the one of the things that works about the internet are the, lev- the seven levels of architecture that helped the internet to uh, evolve rapidly and become substantial infrastructure. A similar architecture with standards and serendipity at every level uh, should appear in the, uh, is appearing in the energy world as, a, as we move towards solving energy. So will it be a decentralized solution like we see with the internet? Or do you see major players dominating? Uh, I naturally see energy going decentralized. That is, instead of having large power plants distributing power, I see energy increasingly um, uh, distributed. Well, one reason is most of the energy is distributed. Solar is distributed roughly evenly across the surface of the earth. So you have to you have to have distributed solar to get it. Wind is uh, wind is distributed. We have these beautiful wind mills all across Texas, and that's distributed. Of course, in order to make distributed work, you need a network. That is, you need a power, the internet, I call it, a network, so that when you generate lots of power in a windy West Texas, 
you can get it to some place where it's useful, like Houston or Dallas or something. So the, the networking of energy is driven by the need to uh, distribute its generation. And will the distribution, will that be through that current grid or will that be something a company or hopefully a government will be willing to undertake? Did you say hopefully a government? I think certain things, yes. I think certain things need to be regulated and done by the government because there's not good solutions when it comes to private enterprise. I think healthcare in the US is obviously one of those. I think that you can you can knock down a couple of different examples where the industry is incentivized to take advantage and there's no alternative. Uh, you and I could not disagree more on the point you've just raised. The uh, For me, the uh, vitality is caused uh, of economic growth and the solving of major problems is formed by fierce competition among uh, free enterprise entities, certainly not by the government. So I wouldn't I wouldn't see the government running the energy system. I think most of the energy providers will transition to the new modes of energy. I don't think they have to go bankrupt in order to bring them. And you have to remember that providing energy is a huge investment, not just in technology, but in infrastructure. And just think of the government's just think of all the rights of way that one needs to get governments in order to uh, build a distributed energy system. And those those rights of way battles in all the jurisdictions of all the governments are not helpful in the development of a new energy system. But what's also not helpful is the government saying, here, you go build this, we'll subsidize it for you, and then you can own it and essentially operate it as a monopoly. Like I would argue when it comes to internet, when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to energy, Europe is doing a better job than the US in all three. When it comes to cost, when it comes to performance, and it's because they're things that the government regulates. This is how, how it has to be because the incentives aren't properly aligned for companies to do what's best for consumers and the environment, if we add that in as well, and sustainability. I just don't see it that way. I guess that's because I'm the fellow of free enterprise at the University of Texas. I don't see the, the growth of centralized government as a solution to any problem. It is the problem. In the case of the internet, one of our big obstacles was the AT&T monopoly created. That monopoly was created by government, and it took, we had to destroy that monopoly in 1984 in order for the internet to get built. And we had to get the, T to get the FCC to stop regulating the internet. Recently, there's a thing called net neutrality where the forces of evil tried to get the government back into regulating the internet by creating a thing called net neutrality. And fortunately, I think you'll disagree with me, fortunately, we fought off that effort of government to get back into the business of regulating the internet. See, I feel like that's I feel like that's in some sense missing the point, though. So let's let's play a devil's advocate scenario. We accelerate out into the future. We have more automation. Jobs start to go away. The scariest thing I see for the U.S. is prosperity, where we automate more and more jobs. Fewer and fewer workers are needed. And because we have a, a free enterprise type mentality, we bulletproof our Teslas. We build and manufacture for the sake of driving GDP. And 50% of the world of the country starves to death because shoot, they can't work. That's that's kind of the future we're headed towards. I, I don't I, I imagine you have a different perspective on this, but I don't know how we solve certain things when we evolve beyond the need for other things. Well, in 1900, 40% of Americans knew how to milk cows. 
And most of them, most of us don't know how to milk cows anymore. I grew up where every elevator had an ele elevator operator. There are very few elevator operators left. Um, they've all found work somewhere else. Uh, unemployment is really low in the United States. But underemployment is very high. It's a false statistic the government uses. Well, under, well, I can claim that underemployment is a false statistics too. Uh, so now we're going to descend into um, opposing studies. I'm much more optimistic. Since you're asking me, I'm much more optimistic. Uh, things won't go into 50% starving population owing to uh, automation. I mean, that, that's been a recurring fear-mongering thing for a very long time, and it just hasn't happened. What do you do with coal miners, truck drivers, or that 50% of America that has incredibly menial labor when they're super easy to automate? It's cheaper to do that, and there's nowhere near enough time to retrain them. Do you like UBI? Say again? Do you like universal basic income or something where we can kind of fake capitalism going forward? Uh, I would oppose, I do oppose OB, UBI. I, I oppose minimum wages. I, I'm into, I'm into, uh, I have seen the efficacy of competition and the evolution of jobs. So this, this problem of unemployment has been, we've been worrying about it for decades, but as long as we keep growing our economy and employing new technologies and um, uh, educating our people, that problem that you're afraid of, of mass starvation and menial labor, and it just doesn't happen. So right now, the, the richest three Americans are as wealthy as the bottom 170 million. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. Income inequality is a tool. It's a way of motivating the uh, 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 motivating people to strive in a highly competitive environment, and it gets problems solved. No, income inequality is not evil. It's a tool. Would you rather be an average American or an average European when it comes to your life quality? I would prefer to be an average American. Okay. I know I had I had Keith Kirkland on the program a couple episodes back. He grew up in Camden, and he was incredibly lucky to get out. He was one of the smartest kids in his class, and his teachers told him he'd never amount to anything. Which Camden? Uh, uh, New Jersey. Oh, see, I live near Camden, Maine. <laughs> oh, no. I got easily confused there. Yeah, we got, we got such a big country. We have lots of names for the cities. I, I I don't know. I guess we'll agree to disagree. I feel like the U.S. is headed, in a lot of ways, it's moving towards India. In the more advanced places, San Francisco, you see incredible wealth and success right next to streets filled with needles and guys shitting in the road. And I don't know. I have a hard time calling that progress. Yeah, but who do you blame? The Democrats who have been running that city into the ground? No, I think when you have... I think the nature of exponential technology is exponentially outsized returns, but it's going to be inversely proportional to the number of people benefiting. So, and not benefiting in terms of using a service, but benefiting monetarily. If you have, for instance, I, I built a seven-figure e-commerce business and it took four people plus outsourced teams. There are people that Instagram was a billion dollars when it was something like 11 people. When you have the ability for so much wealth to be created so easily, but not to be dis redistributed in any way, you, you create a situation where almost everything is going to almost no one. And you create, the, I mean, you create, in essence, peasantry, where the system's designed to break at some point because there's only so many that can be left behind before they realize there's not, they realize there's a problem here. Well, you know, you need some cheering up. You're, you're really depressed and heading down a rat hole. I mean, for example, you just said there's no redistribution. There's God 
problems of redistribution. Now, it takes time, but the, you know, rich people pay all the taxes, and the taxes are going into uh, you know, benefiting everyone. And plus, the rich people are one by one committing themselves. They realize they can't spend all that wealth, so they're committing them to uh, well-run, they call them impactful philanthropics. So, so to say that there's no distribution, which you just said, uh, that, that's just, you're just depressed. You need cheering up. Fair point. Not no redistribution. It's just slow. It's if, if interest rates were going up at 10% and half a percent were being redistributed, it's still nine and a half percent. It's a, it's a complicated topic. I just think it's something that we need to address before it becomes a point of no return type thing. Well, I look forward that, to having dinner with you soon because I, I, I think I can, I'd like to participate in cheering you up. I think you're way too pessimistic. And the, the, the needle, probably the, true. my children live in San Francisco, so I get daily reports on the decline of that city. And that decline there has nothing to do with the success of the super tax. It has to do with gross mismanagement of the cities. So you're placing blame in the wrong place. And, and in fact, uh, there's hope from the success of the super tax. And you should go start another one. We, we look forward to it. Oh, definitely. There's a, there's a lot of stuff happening around the world. What other areas are you most excited about in terms of countries, innovations, et cetera? I'm most excited about uh, advances in healthcare. And not healthcare, health, just to be put a fine point on it. Too much of the discussion of health has to do with the structure of payment mechanisms and insurance and efficiencies of administration. I mean, we're on the verge of actually having health where you won't need so much of all that healthcare administration because people will be well. And the, you know, just looking at the research opportunities in science and, uh, you know, like uh, CRISPR and there's a long list of big breakthroughs, our health is about to get a lot better. And that's, that's the thing that's most exciting to me. So one of my four projects is, is uh, fleshing out the Internet of Things to carry health information and not health information that does or does not help the insurance companies maximize profits, but uh, healthcare information that helps us cure diseases and keep people healthy. Who owns that data, ideally? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Who should own that data, ideally? Do we want to follow the Facebook, Google model that we did before, or do we change that? Who owns that data? That's a very complicated question. If we could be as successful as Facebook in healthcare, that, I guess I would welcome that. Uh, the Not for I, you guys, I mean, in general, when it comes to health tech type products, wearables, who do you think should own that data? Not, does, not in the, this particular instance. Well, you should own it, but then you should be able to sell it, in which case somebody else will own it. So if, if uh, so, you collect all the, you're going to be perpetually monitored, you're going to choose to do that, and then you're going to choose what to do with that information. And as happened in Facebook, in a lot of cases, it'll be to your benefit benefit to even though you own your information is to sell it or give it away even for properly anonymized that information could be useful in curing diseases and so a lot of people will volunteer their data even though they own it they can give it away if they want and they'll they'll give it to people who are working on uh, curing diseases because they're tired of watching their loved ones die of cancer yeah and, neuro so and neurological the diseases. privacy thing is very complicated and I'm not sure I can even disagree with you but the um, uh, for example who owns the fact that you are a deadbeat. If you're somebody who doesn't pay their bills, do you own that fact? Or do the other people who have suffered at not getting paid, do they own the fact that you are a deadbeat? And that's very personal information. So who owns that fact? And I uh, I don't think you own the fact that you're a deadbeat. I would, I would probably agree. I, I think it's something if you can see it publicly, then it's public knowledge. But if it's something where it's private in nature, or especially if it's something that's getting taken out of your body, you better freaking own it. Otherwise, there's some major complications. 
situations. But well, we agree. I, we agree on that. I'm just saying, after you own it, you then have the right to sell it or to give it away. And, mm -hmm. and most people don't care about privacy. As we've seen, most people are willing to give away the most intimate details of their life to get famous on Facebook. Does that scare you? It worries me. I've, I've gone cold turkey on Twitter. I was addicted to Twitter for 10 years and I'm a much better person now that I don't use it. And now I'm watching my use of Facebook and I'm beginning to see the same addictive uh, behaviors there too. So I'm considering what to do there. So, the, but that's part of this dealing with connectivity. We're suddenly connected and we just don't know what the hell to do with it. So we're doing stupid things like spending, I was spending three and a half hours a day on Twitter. And then I just, after 10 years, 35,000 tweets and 25,000 followers, I just stopped one day and it, I feel much better now. Yeah. We're not evolved to handle sugar. We're not evolved to handle quick hits. It's uh, it's problematic when you can play with the pleasure droves like that, and you have the smartest people in the world incentivizing you to do it. Right, but remember, we have we have opioid epidemic at the same time we have a Twitter epidemic. There's something about addiction that we need to learn about. I think from the best studies I've seen, addiction comes from lack of happiness combined with some type of isolation. So you don't have contact with other human beings. When you have that deep sense of intimacy with people in your life, a lot of the problems seem to go away. It's not a silver bullet, it's a lifestyle thing. But I think a lot of the issues that plague people are lifestyle things, not silver bullets these days. So you're saying that uh, contacting people through something like Twitter or Facebook doesn't work so much as uh, direct physical personal contact. Yeah, it's not real. If you think about it. Who are your five closest friends? And now pick five random people on Facebook. Do these five random people on Facebook give you nearly as much in terms of anything as the five closest friends? And I hope to God the answer is no. But the answer is the answer is no. But those people I also contact on Facebook and email. Oh yeah, no, that doesn't change it. But for I feel like for a lot of people, not even necessarily. I feel like for a lot of people, social media replaces the feeling of a need for s social contact, but it doesn't actually replace the. Need need for it. So it's like if you were to, what's a good example? If I drink 10 cups of coffee, I get rid of the feeling of the need for sleep, but I don't get rid of the need for sleep. My body's still going to crash at some point. And we're in the situation where we have so much false stimulation. We're crashing from not having the thing we actually need. Right. And we're chasing the thing that we don't need, the likes, the shares, etc., because it makes us feel good, even though it makes us feel worse. Well, I agree, but I also generalize it. The opioid epidemic being my favorite example. I mean, that, that's not an internet thing, but it, it's similar to the pathology that you just called out on the internet. Why do people take drugs like that? Yeah, they're missing something essential in their life. It's uh, it's tough. And with um, a, a lot of the states that are hit the most are the ones that have been losing jobs and they don't have an economic future or they don't seem to feel like they have an economic future. It's right. depressing. And then there's obesity, which uh, I'm 50 pounds overweight. I know everything there is to know about nutrition and health. I know everything. And still I'm 60 pounds overweight. So, that, so that's another addiction uh, that a lot of us suffer from. It's an addiction, but it's also part of it is we've been sold lies by the food and drug industry. There's no such thing as an essential carbohydrate. And a lot of people's metabolisms and hormonal responses get messed up by eating eating more or less what we eat. So wasn't, they found- But wasn't it your favorite government that created this ridiculous food pyramid? Wasn't that a government thing? Oh, no, I didn't say I was a fan of government. I, a, I'm much more of a fan of European governments. I feel like the US government manages to mess most things up. The other ones seem to be a lot more efficient and streamlined. 
but that's a that's a whole nother story. But in terms of in terms of that, you've got to get um. I mean, if you wanted to fix that kind of stuff, you have to fix corporate finance and uh, lobbying. If you can have that much money in terms of buying a senator, then it's it's a pretty easy thing to buy on eBay type deal. Yes. But that's a, that's a whole no, that's a whole nother can of worms. If we fix that, we fix a lot of problems. I think. I agree. This question, I think, kind of ties deep into a lot of what we've been discussing. As a as someone focused on innovation, as someone who's been a venture capitalist, who's been a founder, how do you think about the big problems that aren't the most profitable to solve? So for instance, if you look at venture capital, a massive percentage allocation goes towards simple to solve software problems. But those aren't necessarily the big problems that change the world or need solving. Those are just the ones that have the best upside for a 10-year time horizon. How do you think about creating big problem or creating big solutions to big problems that have longer time horizons or aren't as economically processed, um, there's not as much of an upside. That is the new agenda in venture capital. Well, venture capital doesn't sit still. It evolves. And at any one time, it's in a, it's going in some other direction. And right direction, the direction it's going in now is MIT calls them tough technologies. In Texas, we call them hard technologies, but it's the movement away from social mobile cloud into the harder problems, the tough technologies like energy, like health. And that is a trend in venture capital. And the VCs are renegotiating the uh, contracts they have with their LPs to allow them, for example, that the MIT engine is a venture capital operation, but with a much longer time horizon than is typical. And that's been negotiated with their LPs, their limited partner investors. I think the good news is that's the trend, is toward the harder. Now, to go to things that are not profitable, this is a pet peeve of mine. Just because we agree that something should happen doesn't mean we should create a government agency to do it. We can set the money aside and invest it in private enterprise to solve rather than, and the, you know, the great example is public schools. Just because we believe everyone should have an educational opportunity doesn't mean the government's any good at running schools so that you know, uh, other schools should be created. So what I'm saying is there are many what, what are called market failures for which the solution is to build a government agency. No, the solution should be to put the money toward uh, encouraging companies to organize resources yeah, to meet. Subsidize. Uh, so, yeah, I know that word. No, you want to buy, let's say we want to buy edu- universal education for everyone. So we buy it from somebody who knows how to produce it. Is that a subsidy? Not exactly, but if you created subsidies, then you could have the competition between different people trying to sell it. So like, for instance, we have, for God, for God only knows what reason, we have subsidies on coal and oil as opposed to having more subsidies on renewable energies. But you could do similar things when it comes to education. If you wanted to have a free market education system, you set aside subsidies that individual enterprises can apply for and that they can use to offset their costs. So they're making money, the students are getting a better education, and it's going to be much more effective than the government's system for doing it because governments just like to add paperwork. Right, we agree there, but I'm still raising a flag around the world sub, around the word subsidy. Is that's that's a pejorative that's generally applied to the government giving money to things outside the government and I prefer to view it as re- uh, revenue that is the comp- the government wants to buy something like education or oil and gas or coal or energy or in- energy independence or all those things. So it buys it 
And I guess the people who are opposed to that call them subsidies. Okay, so a contractor. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I, it would be an interesting model. We definitely need to fix something with education, that's for sure. Right. And I think, though, so for example, charter schools is a step in the right direction. But the educational, the government unions that run public education now are trying to kill charter schools. And uh, that's really infuriating to me. I guess the most evil people on earth, no, maybe not the most evil, but right up there are the teachers' unions who are preventing all this progress from education. I think if you could get administrators out of schools and universities, you'd be able to cut the cost down significantly. It's like 10 to 1 administrators to teachers. And, and then Right. And that ratio sorry. is generally driven by government requirements. Uh, you know, you must do this, you must do that. So they hire a dean to do it. But, yeah, but, no, but we agree. <laughs> we agree. Yeah, no, Education's going in the wrong direction right now, except for the internet part, which is going to save us. Yeah, this is, this is where I get in a, a hiccup with people where people say America is the greatest country and then don't really look at any of the statistics. And a lot of the statistics were falling woefully behind. We spend more than almost every country when it comes to governmental spending on healthcare. We're the third leading spender, yet we don't have a universal healthcare system. And then you have what patients are paying on top of that. We have an education system where we're maybe top 25 now. It, a lot of a lot of the important things, we have health where our overall longevity is declining. I think there's a lot of things where people need to address the realities and try to solve the problems instead of, yeah, I won't get more political than that. Yeah, but you've touched on another topic, which is fake news. I wonder how many of those alarming statistics that drive you into pessimism are just bullshit. They're just fake fake news. I'm pretty sure for all of those three that those are very correct. But that's that's beside the point. I got one last question for you, Bob. And that's if you had one quote or call to action for people, what would it be and why? Well, I, I do peddle the secret of happiness. Would that be a responsive to your question? I think that's always a good one. Uh, this is true. All you really need to be happy is something to be enthusiastic about. So I've named my boat. I have a boat. I've named her enthusiasm to embody this idea. One of the saddest things about being a university professor is all the students who you meet who are not interested in anything and they're taking drugs to avoid the fact that nothing interests them. And what I try to peddle is you need to get enthusiastic about something. And there's plenty to choose from. The world is very interesting. And the fact that the world bores you and you find nothing interesting about it is a, is a sickness that we got to cure something. So all you really need to be happy is something to be enthusiastic about. And uh, Whatever you do, don't crash that boat. Don't crash the boat. <laughs> then you'll have, to, you'll have to find happiness. I've had her. Yeah, I, oh, I'll, I'll buy another boat. I've had this one for 26 years and she's been enthusiastic the whole time. I definitely agree with that. You've got to have some type of purpose. And whenever I see people wearing a shirt or sharing around something that says zero Fs were given, I'm like, okay, there's a loser because they don't care about the world. They don't care about anything. Why is that something to brag about? I don't understand. It's being apathetic towards everything. It is so sad. This And what causes it? I don't know. But I do know the antidote is something to get enthusiastic about. In my case, my principal enthusiasm is American free enterprise, uh, and it makes me happy to work on it. I think for a lot of people, stimulation is like porn. The world is designed to be overstimulating in terms of social media, in terms of what's going on. Because of all of this overstimulation, people fall into uh, apathy with real life, and I think it's sad. Yeah, there's a related problem. For example, basketball. Now that we have TV and the internet, 
it's hard to be a big fish in a small pond. So you, you get depressed because you can't be an NBA star. And there's only a certain small number of NBA stars and the rest of the rest of basketball players suffer from a lack of hero worship because it's all focused on the NBA. And now that's amplified with all of us. And for good and for good and for bad, that is how it is. Go make a solution, find something and change the world, guys. That's the purpose of this podcast. And we all have that ability to do that. Bob, if people want to learn more about you, what you're doing, where can they find you? Oh, uh, gee, I'm bob.metcalf at utexas.edu. I don't have a website exactly. Well, there's an innovation website that I have a lot to do with at UTexas in the engineering school. And um, it's the best I can do right now. I don't suffer from underexposure, I'm sure. If you've ever used a computer or an Ethernet court, port, you owe this guy a you owe this guy a coffee or something. Thanks for coming on today, Bob. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been a fun and interesting one. I always like the ones where we have some pushback back and forth because we get to more interesting perspectives. Well, I have a new I have a new to do item, which is to cheer you up. Yeah, then I will have to bring you down and somewhere we'll find a happy (laughs) medium. Thanks. Thanks for coming on today, Bob. Bye bye. We'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoy this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.